This morning, I want to tell you that uh, the topic is called Revelation 13 and the Establishment Clause. And I have to give the disclaimer that I do not consider myself an expert on the subject of religious liberty. But at the same time, every Seventh-day Adventist really ought to have a clear understanding of these principles at stake because of where we are and where we're heading. I'm going to go to the slide for most of the presentation. There is a statement that I did not include in the presentation that came to me this morning that should have been in there. And so I'm going to read that before we dive into our topic. But before we do anything, I want to pray and ask the Lord to guide our time together. So I'm going to invite you to bow your heads with me as I do so. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for the Holy Sabbath day. We're thankful for your love and mercy in revealing your truth to us and giving us the courage and the strength to stand on your truth. I pray, Lord, this morning and throughout this day, your Holy Spirit will guide us as speakers, Lord. Uh, Keep self hidden out of sight. Keep back the things that we might say that would confuse issues. And I pray your Holy Spirit would simply take control, that the messages would be clear and they would be practical and prepare us for the times we're living in and the times just ahead. We thank you, Father, for hearing and answering, for we ask and pray these things in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. I want to share with you a statement found in the very beginning of the book Testimonies for the Church, Volume 9. You have heard at least a portion of this, I'm sure. It's page 11 of Testimonies for the Church, Volume 9. It says, We are living in the time of the end. The fast-fulfilling signs of the times declare that the coming of Christ is near at hand. The days in which we live are solemn and important. The Spirit of God is gradually but surely being withdrawn from the earth. And I might elaborate on that by saying in the book of Revelation, we see that the troubles that are coming on the earth are depicted as being held back by the four angels, holding back the four winds from blowing on the earth until the servants of God are sealed in their foreheads. But the angels are loosening their grip, and we see more and more of those troubles. This is what's being commented on here. The days in which we live are solemn and important. The Spirit of God is gradually but surely being withdrawn from the earth. Plagues and judgments are already falling upon the despisers of the grace of God. The calamities by land and sea, the unsettled state of society, the alarms of war... Sounds like I'm reading out of the headlines. Are portentous. In fact, she clarifies it in the next sentence. They forecast approaching events of the greatest magnitude. The agencies of evil are combining their forces and consolidating. They are strengthening for the last great crisis. Great changes are soon to take place in our world. And the final movements will be rapid ones. And wow, how to the point, on point is that statement with where we are today. As Seventh-day Adventists, we're aware that this final crisis, we see it unfolded in Revelation chapter 13. We see the message that meets it, the warning message in Revelation chapter 14. In Revelation 13, two beasts brought into view. We see the papal power and a two-horned beast, which represents Protestant America. And verse 12 of Revelation 13, looking down toward this final crisis, tells us that this country is going to exercise all the authority of that first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. This nation will reach a point where it causes, it compels worship. At the heart of this final contest, then, is liberty of conscience. And as such, it's essential that we understand what liberty of conscience is and what liberty of conscience is not. I want you to note this statement from Inspiration. Great Controversy 569 says, It is Satan's, what? Constant effort to misrepresent the character of God, the nature of sin, and notice, the real issues at stake in the Great Controversy. And so we are going to be looking at these issues this morning. Now I want to start because we're dealing with matters of conscience with a crash course on conscience. I don't know if you've noticed, but 
Conscience seems to be more and more of a common cry in the times that we're living in. When we find ourselves up against something that we don't want to do, a direction we don't want to do, there's that cry of, hey, my conscience tells me different. But as I understand it, there are three categories of people who invoke conscience. At least three. I don't want to narrow it to three. There are those whose consciences are truly bound by the word of God, and we will elaborate on this. There are those who are sincere but confused in regard to what constitutes a matter of conscience. And then there are those who are seeking to circumvent any authority and maintain their independence by invoking conscience. Okay, so let's talk about conscience for a minute. The Bible mentions it a number of times. I'm going to refer to that here shortly. But I want you to understand that the word conscience, interestingly, in the English language and also in the Greek from which it's translated, literally means with knowledge. In other words, conscience requires, you know, when we talk about conscience and we say my conscience is bothering me, what is the result of that? What do we call that when the conscience bothers us? Guilt or conviction, right? And when I, I do a lot of soul winning training and when working with people and sharing truth with people. And one thing that we teach is that a person can't be convicted unless they have information. You can't be convicted about what you don't know, right? Conscience can't bother you when you don't know anything. So the word conscience means with knowledge. And we're going to come back to that in a minute. The Vines Expository Dictionary of the New Testament words, defines conscience as that faculty by which we apprehend the will of God. That's conscience. Now, in the writings of Ellen White, I'm going to share with you a few statements that are going to build on each other. First of all, Review and Herald, June 18, 1889, says, It is the still small voice of the Spirit of God that has the power to convict and convert men's souls. So the Spirit of God brings that conviction. Now, we're going to build on that. Look at this next one. The Holy Spirit strives with every man. It, the Holy Spirit, is the voice of God speaking what? Speaking to the soul. Now, let's put those together with this one. Conscience is the voice of God. What did it say in the last one? The voice of God, it was the Holy Spirit speaking. So, when it says conscience is the voice of God, that tells us the Holy Spirit works through the conscience. Conscience is the voice of God heard amid the conflict of human passions when it is resisted, what? The Spirit of God is grieved because the Spirit of God speaks to us through the conscience. So as I mentioned to you, conscience is something often invoked as an end all to any discussion. It's like, hey, I hear what you're saying, but my conscience tells me I ought to do thus and so. If the conscience is the voice of God, if it's the Holy Spirit speaking to you, who can argue with the conscience? However... Have you ever, I don't, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands here. Have you ever been fighting against God and you hear a sermon or somebody confronts you on a certain topic and you say, I'm personally not convicted on that right now. Now, folks, if you read something in the divine word of God and there it is and you say, yeah, I'm just not convicted that that applies to me. Something's wrong with your conscience. And what you might be surprised to find is the Bible speaks of different kinds of consciences. Are you aware of that? For sake of time, I'm not going to look them up. Then I will give you references here. 1 Timothy 1, verse 5, and 1 in verse 19 both speak of what the Bible calls a good conscience. Hebrews 10.22 speaks of what it calls an evil conscience. Titus 1.15 talks about a defiled conscience. 1 Corinthians 8.12 talks about a weak conscience. And one of my favorites, 1 Timothy 4.2, speaks of a conscience that has been seared with a hot iron. Now, if you take a hot iron to flesh and you sear your flesh, what's the result of that? Initially, ouch, right? The pain of the burn, right? But the reality, what's odd about it is, if you sear the flesh, guess what stops? As it chars over, you have deadened the nerve endings in that, whatever that area of flesh is. And the Apostle Paul uses this to say, when even when it comes to matters of conscience, we can so resist the Spirit of God that our conscience doesn't bother us anymore when it should. So understand there are different kinds of consciences. 
So, what this means is that a person may invoke conscience as a reason for doing or not doing something, and yet it may not be a matter of conscience at all. Let me give you a practical and unsettling example. This was not in one of my churches, but a pastor friend of mine in one of his churches had a woman in the congregation who felt compelled, because the Bible says, after all, in the book of James, to confess your faults to one another, that when she was up on the platform one morning to begin going through and telling the saints and confessing all of her lustful thoughts that she had had for different people in the congregation because she was compelled by her conscience. Now, I'm going to tell you right now that that may be an extreme example. I've had people come to me who felt had what I would call an overly sensitive conscience who felt that they ought to confess every thought to me. And I said, no, I'm not a priest. We don't have those in the Seventh-day Adventist church. You're not to, there are certain things that you confess just to God. But my point is, the person was bothered by their conscience. The point is that sometimes a person can have an oversensitive conscience, which in essence, for again, remember what the word conscience means. It means with what? Knowledge. knowledge. Where does the knowledge come from for the conscience? What is it that is to educate the conscience? Does anybody recall when Martin Luther was before the German council, the Diet at Worms, Germany, he said that his conscience was bound by the word of God. Conscience must be educated by the word of God. And so when Paul talks about the defiled consciences, the weak consciences, they're not with the knowledge they should have. They're uneducated consciences. It's a surprise to some people that conscience must be educated properly by the word of God, or it can send you off on tangents. Now, I want to share with you a passage. Look up with me in your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 4. The Apostle Paul says in verse 4, For I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. Now, I like the way the NIV puts this. The NIV says, My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. If my conscience is clear, I am innocent. Even the Apostle Paul recognized that my conscience is clear, but maybe it's uneducated on something I needed to know. This is how we can find people who are honoring God on Sunday, oblivious about the Sabbath, and they have clear consciences about it, because they don't know any better. And it could be, I could give any other number of issues there. The conscience must be educated. The NASB says it this way, I am conscious of nothing, but that does not make me innocent or does not justify me. The conscience must be educated by the word of God. Thus, as I share with you, Great Controversy 160 quotes Martin Luther before that council, unless I'm persuaded by means of the passages I have quoted, and unless they thus render my conscience bound by the word of God, I cannot and I will not retract, for it is unsafe for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand, I could do no other. May God help me. Amen. That famous speech of Luther, the conscience was bound by the word of God. Now, notice this statement by Ellen White. She says in Review and Herald, September 9, 1901, one says, my conscience does not condemn me in not keeping the commandments of God. You hear that sometimes. But in the word of God, we read that there are good and bad consciences, and the fact that your conscience does not condemn you in not keeping the law of God does not prove that you are uncondemned in his sight. Take your conscience where? to the word of God and see if your life and character are in accordance with the standard of righteousness which God has there revealed. You can then determine whether or not you have an intelligent faith and what manner of conscience is yours. The conscience of man cannot be trusted unless it is under the influence of divine grace. Satan takes advantage of an unenlightened conscience and thereby leads men into all manner of delusions, such as getting up before the congregation and feeling they need to confess all their lustful thoughts. That's exactly what it's talking about. Because they have not made the word of God their counselor. What a powerful statement. So it's important for us to understand when we're talking about the rights of conscience, what conscience is. And conscience is something, conscience has to be educated by the word of God. And a something that goes against my conscience if I say my conscience has told me I need to do thus and so, then I need to be able to show in the word where the word has told my conscience that thing. 
I've had people say that they can't conscientiously wear seatbelts. I don't know it's a law, but I can't conscientiously. Where in the Word of God did it tell you not to wear a seatbelt? You understand what I'm saying? It may be an inconvenience to you. It might be an infraction of what you might term your civil liberty, but it is not a matter of conscience. You understand what I'm saying? And it is vital when we realize that the final issues are matters of conscience that we understand what matters of conscience are. Now, I'm going to talk about something this morning. I'm going to delve into something. I'm going to move into our personal rights in relation to civil government. There is a book that I gathered a lot of this from, called National Sunday Law. It's the actual court transcript of when Elder A.T. Jones, at the 1888 General Conference session, our church, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, appointed A.T. Jones as one, if I'm correct in my history, of one of three representatives who would go before and appear before the United States Senate Committee to discuss the Blair Bill, which was a move for a Sunday legislation. And that book is the transcript in Jones' argument before that committee for the Blair Bill, the U.S. Senate Committee, and it is fascinating. And I'm drawing some of the things from that. Now, again, I don't have time to go through all those details. You can find it on Amazon. But I want to talk about personal rights and civil government. I'm going to ask if you would go with me to Matthew 22. In Matthew 22, we find the quintessential argument for the separation of church and state in the answer of Jesus to the trick question that was posed to him. Matthew chapter 22, and let's start in verse 15. Matthew 22 and verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might what? So note from the get-go that their whole line of questioning was designed to trip Jesus up with his answer, which was often the case. Verse 16, and they sent him to him, rather, they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true, and teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of Ben. In other words, you're not biased, you're not partial. So they start with a little flattery, as they often do as well. Verse 17, tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, remember, this was a trick question. And the trick in the question was this, at least in their minds, he's got to say one or the other. And if he says, no, we shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar, God is our ruler, well then the Roman government can come and punish him as a dissenter and what have you, dissenting faction. But if he says, well, sure, we ought to pay taxes to Caesar, well, then he's selling out and we can tell the Jewish people that he cares more about Rome than he cares about the religion. And that either way, they've got him, right? So they posed the question, and the Bible says, yes, so they thought. But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius, and he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went away. What else can you say? Now that answer of Christ then is still to this day the clearest delineation of a Christian's duty to government. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. I want you to note on the screen, there are evidently things in Caesar's realm which are due him. According to the words of Christ, just as there are things in the spiritual realm that are due God. I have had church members who refused to pay taxes because they said, I am no longer a citizen of this world, I'm a citizen of the heavenly country, and yada, yada, yada. With it, That's another one of those diverted conscience things, I would think. Because Jesus was clear, in fact, this was on the subject of taxes. We're going to see an elaboration on this by the Apostle Paul in Romans 13 here shortly. But I want you to notice that Jesus spells out that there are things in Caesar's realm that are due him. And again, their goal was to trip him up in his answer. And let's just be clear. If Jesus' answer was not complete, was not irrefutable, they would have succeeded in their goal. I want to say that Jesus' answer was the perfect answer. And again, that's why today, to this day, it's still 
uh, stands as the clearest delineation of the Christian's duty to government. Now, I want to talk about the civil government's role, those things which are due Caesar. And it may, I don't know, this may surprise you to understand, you may not want to understand, that when you become a part of a civil government, by nature of being part of a civil government, certain personal rights will always need to be surrendered. Now, that's going to sound like heresy, but just hang on for a minute. Certain personal rights will always need to be surrendered to form a civil government. It is the right and duty of civil government to make laws. That's what they're there for. And you're going to see that in the book of Romans here shortly. Now, I mentioned to you that the following excerpts are from the argument of A.T. Jones before the U.S. Senate Committee regarding the Blair Bill in December of 1888, where he's addressing this very issue. At one point, he states the following. In the things which pertain to our duty to God... With the individual's right of serving God as one's conscience dictates, society has nothing to do. But in the formation of civil society, there are certain rights surrendered to the society by the individual without which society could not be organized. Now, as soon as Jones made this point, and I don't have it on the screen, Senator Blair came back and he's like, hold on a minute. I never submitted to that. When I was of my right, was I of my right mind when I submitted to said, surrendered my said rights? And Jones came back with this response. He says, I think the statement of the Declaration of Independence is true, that the governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed. Now, I want you to understand, too, I should have said this back in Romans, when Jesus said to render unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's? What kind of government was the government of Rome? Was there corruption in the government of Rome? When I highlight what I'm highlighting in the Christian's role in relation to civil government, that is not saying that there isn't corruption that we find in civil government. Does corruption in civil government change the role a Christian has to it? We're going to touch on that. He says, I think that the statements of the Declaration of Independence is true that the governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed. Of all men in this world, Americans ought to be the last to deny what he calls the social compact theory of civil government. Social compact, in other words, we enter into a compact, and when we do that, because we're doing that as a society, there may be certain rights we surrender. And then he begins to cite three sources. The first is a statement made by the Pilgrim Fathers on the Mayflower. I'm going to read all these to you. We're going to look at them together. The second is in the first constitution of the state of Connecticut. And then the last one he looks at is the Bill of Rights, some of the Bill of Rights, of the state of New Hampshire, because it was the home state of Senator Blair who was arguing this case. From the Pilgrim Fathers, this is what they wrote. We whose names are underwritten, the loyal subjects of our dread sovereign, Lord King James, By the grace of God, of Great Britain, France, and Ireland, King, Defender of the Faith, etc., having undertaken for the glory of God and advancement of the Christian faith and the honor of our King and the country, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia, do by these presents, those who are present here, solemnly and what? mutually, in the presence of God and one another, covenant and combine ourselves together into a civil body politic. Right? The government exists. The people chose that we need government. And so they had to agree together on that government and to abide by that government. Right? If you choose to have a government, but when the government says something you don't like, you're going to suddenly disregard the government, then what's the purpose of government? Now, for that reason... For that reason, as we're going to get onto it, then you make parameters, as we did in our Constitution, and then further with the Bill of Rights, to define the role and rights of government. However, continuing on, and by virtue hereof do enact, constitute, and frame such just and equal laws, ordinances, acts, constitutions, and officers from time to time as shall be thought most meet and convenient for the general good of the colony unto which we promise all due submission and obedience. Which you must do if you're going to form a government. Don't form a government and say we're not going to obey, but we formed it. You understand what I'm saying? You understand what they're saying? Okay? Now, let's look at that again in... This is from... Let me just clarify... 
the fundamental orders of Connecticut 1638 and 1639. They say, For as much as it hath pleased the Almighty God by the wise disposition of his divine providence, so as to order and dispose of the things that we, the inhabitants and residents of Windsor and Hartford and Wethersfield, are now cohabiting and dwelling in upon the river of Connecticut and the lands thereunto adjoining, And well knowing where a people are gathered together, the word of God requires that to maintain the peace and union of such a people, there should be an orderly and decent government established according to God to order and dispose of the affairs of the people at all seasons as occasion shall require. They saw it as a God-given duty to have civil government, which we're going to see again in Romans 13 momentarily. And so they go on to say, do therefore, notice, associate and conjoin ourselves to be as one public state or commonwealth. We've agreed to this. We've associated. Now, the question again of Senator Blair was, where did I agree to this? And he goes back and Jones goes back and says, every time a government's formed, we agree to it. And he's giving these examples. And to conjoin ourselves and our successors, and as such shall be adjoined to us at any time hereafter, enter into combination, confederation together, etc., I know it's wordy, but I think you get the general gist of it. And then he refers to a few articles from that New Hampshire's Bill of Rights. One of the points he made before Senator Blair is, of these things I'm speaking of, there have been changes made to the Bill of Rights, but not any of these things I'm sharing have been changed. You'll see what they are here. Number one, and notice they're not in order because I'm not citing all of them. He didn't cite all of them. He's just highlighting some points. All men are born equally free and independent. Therefore, all government of right originates from the people, is founded in what? Consent and instituted for the general good. Now, you know that as we talked about the movements of the last days and religious restrictions, that there are going to be religious laws that are made for the general good. And we oppose that idea when it comes to religious rights, but when it comes to civil rights, it has to be that way. The problem with religious things is those are things that are outside the realm of the civil government. And what we're trying to understand is where the civil government is allowed to act and where they're not allowed to act. And we're just going back and look at some history. Now look at number three. When men enter into a state of society, they do what? Surrender some of their natural rights to that society in order to ensure the protection of others. And without such an equivalent, the surrender is void. Let's comment on the first part. They surrender some of their natural rights in order to ensure the protection of others. A civil government that is elected by the people has to make laws to protect the people. That's why we put them there. Yes or no? Now, when the civil government decides that for protection of the people, we need to wear seatbelts when we drive, I may not like that. I may feel freer without the seatbelt, but I've agreed to put those individuals in government to make laws, to govern what have you, and so I am going to surrender my right not to wear a seatbelt because I understand the government's making its laws for the good of society, even if I disagree in their idea of what's for the good of society. Isn't that true? Now, if I have an idea they're doing it, if I could read motive, but let me be clear on something. This is something that has been confused in the Christian church for way too long. We know where Jesus says, judge not that ye be not judged. And I know (laughs) Christians love to quote that sometimes. Judge not that ye be not judged. And here's the funny thing. In another place in the New Testament, Jesus says, judge righteous judgment. The Apostle Paul says, we are going to judge angels. Can't you judge in the least matters? So in the Bible, there's a place in a way to judge, in a way not to judge. And I would put it this way. As Christians, we're to be able to discern and judge between right and wrong. Like, I can't be like, that guy robbed that bank, but I don't know if it's a theft or not. I'm not sure, because I don't know his family history, or whatever. Now, I'm not really being facetious, because this is exactly where we go. What the Lord was telling us not to judge in was motives, because we can't read motives. When Jesus said, judge not, I can't tell your motives, and therefore I can't discern those motives. But I can tell if the act you're committing is right or wrong. So in other words, when the man robs the bank, I can say he's a thief because he robbed the bank, but I can't tell you why he did it. But you know what we do in our society? We say, I'm not sure if he's a thief because, and then we read into the motive and say, I think he came up in a hard neighborhood and whatever else. 
So we judge the things the Bible tells us not to judge, and we won't judge the thing the Bible tells us to judge. Do you understand what I just said? I fear that too often, and let me just say this, and this is just my personal opinion, our government is a mess. Okay, that's my personal opinion, but it's still our government. I don't agree with everything our government does. But far be it from me to read the motive as to why they do what they do. I don't know motive. I can't read the hearts. I can conjecture. I can theorize. But I don't know for sure. And so I have to assume that when a civil law is made for the protection or good of society, that's why it's being made. I may not agree that that's for the good of society. You understand what I'm saying? But I can't impugn the motives or I'll be found doing the very thing Jesus said, judge not. Does that make sense? So what we're talking about here and what Elder Jones is trying to present in this particular case is he was drawing the distinction between our duty to civil government versus our duty in religious matters. The things that we are to render unto Caesar, there are certain things that we are to render unto Caesar. Now, looking at that statement again, number three, When men enter into a state of society, they surrender some of their natural rights to that society in order to ensure the protection of others. That's why society exists. And without such an equivalent, the surrender is void. So I'm going to make a surrender, but there are certain times when that surrender of my rights to society ends. I'll surrender on the seatbelt. I'll wear the seatbelt or the motorcycle helmet. But there's a place where it ends or whatever. I don't even know if that's a law anymore. I don't ride motorcycles. But for those of you who do, you can tell me afterward. Without such an equivalent, the surrender is void. Now, they mention the equivalent in this next one. And this is still part of their Bill of Rights. Number four, among the natural rights, some are in their very nature unalienable because no equivalent can be received for them. Of this kind are the what? Rights of conscience. So what they said in this Bill of Rights in New Hampshire was that there are certain rights we surrender to be part of society. But when you cross the line and you start dictating those things that are matters of conscience, I can't surrender that right. So there's a distinction between the things that we render unto Caesar and what we render unto God. That is what's being presented in these histories. And it's interesting, so Jones, as he presents these things, of course... Senator Blair was kicking back on this idea of whatever the social compact theory, what Jones called it, or whatever, that I didn't surrender those rights to society. And Jones finishes his argument, and he says, Consequently, sir, the very state which sends you to this capital is founded upon the very theory which you here deny. You're sitting in that chair here because you were voted into that position, and you formed that civil government, and the rights were surrendered to make a government, Because everybody has their opinion, and you all have to come to one common opinion, right? That's the whole concept being presented there. He says, you're denying that very thing that puts you here. So in conclusion, it is both the right and responsibility of civil government to make and enforce laws upon its citizens. That's why it exists. And it is the responsibility of Christians to render unto civil government the respect and obedience to these laws as far as possible without violating his or her conscience. Let's go to Romans 13. And I think the Apostle Paul makes this super clear. But if he doesn't, then we're going to go to 1 Peter. And Peter will put the proverbial, well, just Peter will give more clarity. Let's go to Romans Chapter 13, I'm just going to read the first several verses there, and you'll get the picture of what we've been looking at. This is the same point. Keep in mind again that as Paul is talking, he's talking about a very corrupt government, the government of Rome. Does anybody remember who was ruling at this time? Anybody ever heard the name Nero? Okay, you got an idea. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God... And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Now, this takes us back to Daniel 2. You study Daniel 2 in the great image, right? And when when God first revealed the dream to Daniel, remember what happened? Daniel, in his expression, said, God who raises up kings and removes kings. The powers that exist, Paul says, God allowed them to be there for whatever reason. 
He works his purposes out. Oh, time permitting, we could go over some great places in Bible where that has been the case. Now, verse 2, Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of who? God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Now we know that's not always the case. Sometimes rulers are corrupt. But in the general idea of government, he's trying to explain this to us. Rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. That's the idea of it. That's what government exists for. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. One of the roles of government is to keep evil at bay, right? Some do a better job than others. Number five, therefore, you must be subject, notice, not only because of wrath, in other words, because if you violate, you're subject to penalties, not only that, but also for conscience sake. Now, this is a matter of conscience, being respectful to civil government. That's what the Apostle Paul tells us here. We're going to expound on that in a minute. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers attending continually this very thing. What's his point there? Why are we paying taxes? To establish government so they can regulate society. Again, these are principles. I'm not saying we condone every last thing government does. But there's a relation that we have as Christians to that government. And Paul's describing it here. Notice, for because of this, verse 6 again, because of this you pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due taxes, to whom taxes are due, customs to customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So you have that rendering unto Caesar. The thing, that's Paul's just expounding on the concept that Jesus laid out and giving direction to the Christian. Now, I want you to finish up with me. Well, not finish up, but in this little section of 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. You'll find Peter is addressing the very same concept, the relation of the Christian to civil government. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. The Bible says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your what? Your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. I want to break that down for you. That when they speak against you as evildoers, your actions will refute their accusations. When they speak against you as evildoers, your conduct should be such that they can't prove it. And notice how he goes on to explain that. Verse 13, Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. That's exactly what Paul just told us. For this is the what? The will of who? This is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. As free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. I think the general point is plain. A Christian's response to government. In fact, let me put this on the screen. This is in the Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown commentary on Romans chapter 13, verse 5, that we are to comply not only because of wrath's sake, but also because of conscience. They make the point, it is of magistracy in general, that would be government in general, considered as a divine ordinance that this is spoken. This is spoken of government, what Paul's speaking there. And the statement applies equally to all forms of government from an unchecked despotism, such as flourished when this was written under the Emperor Nero, to a pure democracy. The inalienable right of all subjects to endeavor to alter or improve the form of government under which they live is left untouched here. In other words, we can try to make it better. There's no problem with that. 
But since Christians were constantly charged with turning the world upside down. Now he's explaining Paul's counsel in Romans 13. And and it would apply equally to Peter's there. And since there certainly were elements enough in Christianity of moral and social revolution to give plausibility to the charge and tempt noble spirits crushed under what? Misgovernment to take redress into their own hands. He says there's already enough in Christianity that was challenging society. And in addition to that, Christians were being tempted because of the oppression in government to respond and take matters into their own hands. Because of that, he says, Paul's issuing this council. It was of special importance that the Pacific, that is a peace-loving, submissive, loyal spirit of those Christians who resided at the great seat of political power in Rome at that time should furnish a visible refutation of this charge. In other words, it was especially important that Christians showed themselves to be submissive and obedient where they could. Because that was a testimony to Christianity. Well, I mean, it's just a powerful concept. You can go on and think about that for a while, but I think it's just outlining to us that there are certain civil liberties that must necessarily be surrendered to form a government. I have heard with some of the civil happenings, not all of which I'm happy about, but I've heard Seventh-day Adventists say, this is it. This is what we're looking for. These are the things that are coming. This is attack against my rights of conscience. This is not a matter of liberty of conscience. This is a relation to civil government and not a relation to religious matters. The issue for Seventh-day Adventists to be concerned with is not the civil government making civil laws to govern the people by. It is the church using the civil government to make and enforce moral laws, those things which pertain to God. I've often heard it explained that we go to Daniel and Revelation, we look at that fourth beast of prophecy of Daniel, that he's diverse from all the others, and that diversity is because it's a blending of the political and religious powers. You know, compelling worship. That's not entirely true. And I've I've wrestled with that over the years, because if you go to Daniel 3, what's the big story in Daniel 3? The king forces the people to bow down and... Worship. Well, that's not church and state. I don't know what is. We come to Daniel chapter 6, and what's the story? Lion's den. King. Now, that wasn't the king, actually. It was his princes who generated this law and duped the king. Made a law that nobody could worship, pray to, anybody but the king for 30 days. Right? I don't want to say it's a union. See, we can't really call it a union of church and state because those governments were monarchies. And they controlled everything. The uniqueness of that fourth beast is what that it was a Christian kingdom that would come up who, by the very command of Christ, were to keep church and state separate. Bound by the teachings of Christ to keep matters of church and state separate, but that in contradiction to the teachings of Christ, which is why it's referred to as anti-Christian, seeks to use the power of the fourth beast, the state, to accomplish its religious purposes. Okay, that's what we see, and I want to elaborate this issue of the uniting of church and state. It happened with papal Rome, and this is what the Bible says is going to be happening again. I think this is an interesting statement by Dr. Philip Schaff, the church historian. He says, secular power has proved a satanic gift to the church, and ecclesiastical power has proved an engine of tyranny in the hands of the state. The two were to be kept separate, We see that in the forming of our own government, which we're going to look at in just a moment. And so in Revelation 13, we see a two-horned beast representing Protestant America, following in the footsteps of the first beast, Papal Rome, by seeking to enforce religious worship of the first beast by the power of the state. Now, I want you to notice what's happening in the end-time scenario. It's not the government dictating to the church. It's the church dictating to, then through, the government. And it's a very different scenario than we're seeing now. And I'm going to tell you that the things that are happening in our civil government, they may be setting paving stones and paving the way in some of the things that are happening, but it's not the issue. The issue that we're looking for is this issue where the church begins to seek civil power to force its views on society and enforce its decrees. 
Uh, We might add that when we talk about the papacy, the Church of Rome didn't become the papacy as we understand it until the decree of Justinian went into effect, conferring the power of the civil government into the hands of the church. It was a corrupt church. It was based on tradition, not scripture. But when we identify the papacy, that is when the church gained the power of the state and then used the state to enforce her decrees. We see this in Revelation chapter 17. Notice in Revelation 17 that John sees a woman representing the church doing what? She's riding on the beast. Now, I've asked people before, when you have an animal and a person riding the animal, who's in charge? And, of course, I have to add most of the time, because when I'm riding an animal, the animal always seems to be in charge. The people who know how to ride horses or whatever else, you know that the rider controls the animal. This is not an accidental portrayal in Scripture. Scripture shows the woman on the beast showing us that it's the church that's using the civil power to enforce the decrees. We see this in the crucifixion of Christ. The Jewish church could not do anything to further their... They had to take and go to the Roman government, and the government said, judge them according to your law, and they said, we can't put them to death by our law. And so they needed the power of the state to enforce religious decrees. The woman is said to have committed fornication with the kings of the earth, and her riding of the beast illustrates that it is the church who controls the state and not the state who controls the church. Now, in our final minutes, I want to wrap this into the establishment clause and our constitution. If asked, I'm not sure how many Americans these days would know what the establishment clause is. I would venture to guess that a fair number of those who do know it would misquote it. I had jotted this down before I found such said references that I'm going to share with you in a minute. The Establishment Clause is the first part of the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution included in the Bill of Rights. The Establishment Clause, together with that amendment's Free Exercise Clause, form the constitutional right of freedom of religion and freedom of press, and freedom of speech, and what have you. There are two versions, at least two versions, but two I'm going to highlight, versions of the Establishment Clause. One says that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, etc. The other says Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion. It sounds Insignificant, but I want to show you something. Going back to, in fact, what I'm going to share with you here as we are coming to a close is a presentation, once again, A.T. Jones presented our case against the legislation of the Sunday closing of the World's Fair in Chicago in 1893. In fact, he appeared at the hearing by the House Committee on January 10 to 13, 1893, and he reported that experience in his second evening sermon at the general conference session on Sunday, January 29, just two weeks later. Incidentally, of those presentations of Jones, Ellen White tells us later that those presentations were of the Holy Spirit's framing. There was a lot going on in the attempts to try to legislate Sunday religion, and I believe that the Lord had to hold back the four winds. Or we would have seen it then. Now, in his sermons, he shared from the transcripts of the hearing itself... And at one point he was reviewing in the context of the current attempt to legislate Sunday closing based on religious reasons, he referred back to the process of our Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Notice what he says. As he's speaking to this committee, you know, something that was ironic about it, and I wish I could tell the whole story, but when the committee met and they had all of these people, it wasn't just Seventh-day Adventists there, anybody who was arguing for the rights of conscience showed up at this hearing And the committee told all the people who had their arguments presented, they came, they were ready to go, and they said, oh, by the way, we're not going to hear anybody. If your argument is about this being unconstitutional, we're not going to listen to it. Well, that was the majority of people's arguments. It's like, what do you mean you're not going to listen to it? Like, this is unconstitutional. We're not going to hear it. But A.T. Jones' train was late that day. And he missed the announcement. And so when his turn came up, he argued against the unconstitutionality of it. And the Lord ordained it. It's just phenomenal. The history is phenomenal. 
In that argument, he said the Constitution has spoken. He's telling them regarding this law. The Constitution has spoken and denied the right of the United States government to touch the question. Right? This is a matter of things pertaining to God, not to Caesar. And God has reserved that right to the states or to the people. Not only did it do that, but it went farther and actually prohibited the government of the United States from touching the question. This lack of power would have been complete and total without the prohibition because the powers not delegated are reserved. So in the Constitution itself, you're not to have, the government's not to have anything to do with matters of religion, but our forefathers were so concerned coming from a land of religious tyranny, they said, let's clarify that in the Bill of Rights. And this is what he's talking to. This would have been complete. But, he says, the people went farther and not only reserved this power, but expressly prohibited Congress from exercising it. It is terribly unconstitutional for Congress to touch this question. In fact, one of the gentlemen there interrupts him to correct him. And he says, and I don't have it on the screen, the language of the Constitution, I believe, is that Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion. Just follow along here, and I'll make sense of this as we're wrapping this up. Jones responds, he says, the amendment does not read, as is often misquoted, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion. But Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Now, I'm going to introduce this now, and you're going to see this in our final slides. What's the difference? Well, look at that first version that is misquoted. Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion. What's that say? It says Congress cannot establish a state church. Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of a religion. What if you change the word? Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. That means Congress can't make any law respecting any established religion that exists. And that's a night and day difference. Now you may say, well, that doesn't seem night and day, but I'm going to tell you that this wording in recent times and up to this day is going to be used. Well, I'll show you how it's been used. Now he continues on. Jones continues on. There are two meanings in this clause. When the Constitution was made, all that it said upon this subject was that no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. Some of the states had established religions at the time. The first part of the clause was intended to prohibit Congress from making any law respecting any of these religions which were established already. (laughs) In those states... And the second part of the clause prohibits Congress from touching the subject of religion on its own part in any way. That was Jones's point. Drew out a little bit of the difference of those clauses. Now, I want to fast forward. Some of you remember the 1980s and a movement called the religious right and the moral majority. And maybe you're aware that there were attempts even then, as there are today, to use legislation to legislate morality, religious laws. There began a movement several decades ago in this country to send aspiring young men and women from different denominations to receive their legal degrees and go into politics so they could use their offices to get religious laws into government. So while we're all worried about civil laws being passed, as a diversion of the enemy, what's happening under our noses is a continual push to legislate morality. This was from 1980, Moral Majority Newspaper of August 1980. It says, separation of church and state, this is Jerry Falwell speaking, separation of church and state is a dangerous concept. Now notice what he says, the phrase separation of church and state is not found in the Constitution And the misuse of the phrase leads to all sorts of trouble, notice, such as trying to keep godly principles out of legislation. The free exercise clause means that the government is powerless to be involved in the regulation of belief or church activities. It does not mean that our beliefs cannot be legislated. Wipe the phrase separation of church and state out of your vocabulary. Folks, 
That's exactly what it means, is that beliefs can't be legislated. That's exactly what the Establishment Clause means. Now, out of curiosity, I was just looking up and I googled the Establishment Clause. Here's the very first hit. Don't know if you can read it, but it says, the Establishment Clause prohibits the government from establishing a religion. (laughs) In part, that's the case. The next hit down under that People Ask section says this. The First Amendment's Establishment Clause prohibits the government from making any law respecting an establishment of religion. The clause not only forbids the government from establishing an official religion, but also prohibits government actions that unduly favor one religion over another. Now, that's a a good definition. Now, one thing that surprised me is this was totally unrelated, but I had a pastor send me a series of evangelistic sermon slides, and I went to the sermon randomly, seriously, I mean, there's nothing random because God ordains things, but I went to the series. This is put out by ASI. It's their New Beginnings. It's their updated New Beginnings slide series. And in the presentation on the United States in prophecy, I found this slide. Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That's not how it reads in the Bill of Rights. Now, my point in this is simply to conclude that the Bible clearly points out that the final movements will be those of the church seeking to compel the conscience by gaining control of the powers of the state to enforce her decrees. As we saw in the trial of Christ, and it's interesting that when Christ came before Pilate, what did he say? He said, those who delivered me to you, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. He exonerated the civil government Because the issue was that the church was employing the civil government to do what the church should never do. I want to close with a couple statements on this from the pen of inspiration. Great Controversy 445. Notice what it says. When the leading churches of the United States, uniting upon such points of doctrine as are held by them in common, shall notice, influence what? The state to do what? Enforce their decrees and sustain their institutions. This is what we're looking out for. Then, Protestant America will have formed what? An image. The papacy was formed by the church gaining power of the state to enforce her decrees. When this country goes down the same road, it will then have formed an image to the papacy. Then, Protestant America will have formed an image of the Roman hierarchy, and the infliction of civil penalties upon dissenters will inevitably result. One more In the book, Testimonies for the Church, volume 5, page 451, by the decree, notice, enforcing the institution of the papacy in violation of the law of God, our nation put in a position to enforce the decrees of the church, will disconnect herself fully from righteousness when Protestantism shall stretch her hand across the gulf to grasp the hand of the Roman power, when she shall reach over the abyss to clasp hands with spiritualism, when under the influence of this threefold union, notice our country shall repudiate every principle of its constitution as a Protestant and Republican government of the people, by the people, for the people, and shall make provision for the propagation of papal falsehoods and delusions, then we may know that the time has come for the marvelous working of Satan and that the end is near. And brothers and sisters, this time is at hand. But let's be clear what we're looking for. And I'm going to tell you one other thing. The angels of God are holding the four winds until the servants of God are sealed in their foreheads. And our church is not ready for this, folks. Whatever's coming. I don't know what's going to come with Russia. We talk of nuclear war and what. I don't know what's coming, but I know this. God's got to get his church ready. And maybe these things are the means of getting his church ready. Uh, As we see what lies ahead. May we be seeking the Lord with all our heart while he may be found and making sure that we're ready to meet him when he comes and that we're seeking to help others be ready to meet him when he comes too. Amen? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Father, we've looked at many things here this morning and just scratched the surface. And Lord, I know that you're speaking through clay, but I pray your Holy Spirit would take some of the things shared this morning and Lord, perhaps throughout the uh, presentations throughout the day, we'll clear the direction, the picture in our mind, the direction that we are to go. 
would encourage us as your people to carry out the commission you've given us to receive that seal of God and be prepared for the soon coming of Christ. Father, prepare us for the times just ahead. And Lord, help us to shine as lights in the darkness of this world. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.